Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Al Kohler, author of Exploring Space, Opening New Frontiers. Coming out of uh, World War II, uh, we were able to bring with us the uh, remnants of the German rocket team. Uh, And they came to us rather than go to the Russians. We'll discuss the first comprehensive effort to map South Florida. The goal for Ives was to produce a comprehensive collation of all of that information that would benefit uh, the federal government in their military operations. And we'll talk about the Brooklyn Borough in Jacksonville, a neighborhood for U.S. colored troops from the Civil War. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Dr. Al Kohler is author of Exploring Space, Opening New Frontiers, available from Amazon.com. Before retiring in 2013, Kohler led the creation of Space Tech, the National Science Foundation's Center for Aerospace Technical Education. Prior to that, he had a 32-year career with NASA that included working in the firing room for Apollo 11, the first manned lunar landing mission. Kohler moved to Florida in 1958, where he had the opportunity to work with rocket pioneer Werner von Braun. Kohler was just 17 when he started working in the aerospace industry. My father was involved in aviation and space from the early days. Um, And when we moved to Florida, I was in my senior year of high school, and they had a science fair. It was probably one of the first. That's one of the things that space brought to Titusville and and the Space Coast. And I placed well on that, and out of that came a job with the Army Ballistic Missile Agency, which was the group that had a launch center here for essentially von Braun's rocket team. So there I was at age 17, involved with the Army Ballistic Missile Agency, launching things like the Redstone, which had just completed the launch of Explorer 1 about 18 months before, and it started from there. Um, I went, came back summers. The next summer, the Army Ballistic Missile Agency Missile Firing Lab, which is what it was called, was transferred en masse to NASA. So there I am, a NASA technician at the age of 18, (laughs) and went to college when I finished 
I got a job offer from NASA, came back to work at the Cape, and I've been there essentially ever since. For the historic Apollo 11 mission, Kohler's job was to direct the crew manning 61 cameras to present top NASA management with the most important views of what was happening at the launch pad three miles away. While at NASA, Kohler worked his way from being a technician to a staff engineer. Probably one of the most interesting things I did was to help convert from checklists to procedures because now we're beginning to look at launching people. And the whole game changed when we went from essentially weapon systems, Army Ballistic Missile Agency, to launching people, NASA. Uh, I did that for uh, 32 years with NASA. Uh, became essentially a manager, had a couple of very interesting activities. Probably the most interesting for me was I got to lead the, the group that wrote and published the environmental impact statement for the space shuttle at the Cape. Fascinating. We're launching rockets from the middle of a wildlife refuge, one of the country's largest and most diverse. And so a lot of fun and an awful lot of really, really talented people. Kohler spends much of his book exploring space, opening new frontiers, focusing on early development of the space program. The infrastructure for the space program in Florida was developed in the 1940s. Coming out of uh, World War II, uh, we were able to bring with us the uh, remnants of the German rocket team. And they came to us rather than go to the Russians. And we immediately became involved in a race with the Russians post-war. About, I think, probably 1948, 1949, our government was looking for where it would launch from. Now, at that point in time, they were already launching rockets in White Sands, New Mexico, for example. They had a base in Texas, and they were looking for how you would launch big rockets. And Florida was one of the areas, and probably uh, two or three factors made it the choice. One was that in our area was the Banana River Naval Air Station. So we already had land here, essentially government land and uh, infrastructure in place. And because we're on the east coast of Florida, now we have launch over water for a vast area. We can go downrange for thousands of miles and not overfly land. And we're moving to the east at 1,000 miles an hour. People forget we're on the outside of the spaceship Earth, <laughs> moving at 1,000 miles an hour. So if you launch from Florida, close to the equator, and you launch to the east, you already have 1,000 miles an hour in terms of orbital velocity to work from. Those are factors that made the choice for Florida. It was not very heavily populated area. A lot of orange groves, uh, citrus activities here. And so along came essentially the military, Patrick Air Force Base, and what was essentially the Air Force Missile Test Range in the early days. That would have been early 50s. First Redstone was launched here in 1953. In the 1950s, the space race continued to accelerate, and by the 1960s, America was sending manned missions into space in an effort to launch a successful trip to the moon and back. I get a kick out of people saying we're doing commercial space, like for the first time. In the early days, there were 25 companies involved. And the early flights, if you look at the early pictures of what was there, they were winged vehicles. They weren't STEM rockets like we have today. They were aircraft that were adapted. Some of them had um, jet engines. Some of them had rocket-assisted takeoff. And then that morphed into rockets to lift people straight up, okay, and to go from flying bombs, essentially, to flying animals, monkeys, and, and, and then to flying people. 
And when that happened, we're talking about the Kennedy era now, where all of a sudden we go from essentially weapon systems work to flying for science and to take humans out into space. And what does that mean? And really, nobody knew what that meant. We didn't know whether people could even swallow once they were in the, in the, in the microgravity of space. So an interesting time, and people don't realize. I think the peak probably was like in 19, I don't know, 56 maybe, 149 flights a year out of this base. And we're used to now one or two a month. In fact, two a month is probably a high year for us. One a month is probably more normal over the last uh, three or four years since the uh, shuttle terminated. Uh, we're back on the increase again. And all of that plays back to those very early days when we were pioneering and breaking the mold and trying to figure out what it all meant. Shortly after the Apollo program ended in 1975, the space shuttle program was developed to serve a much different purpose, Al Kohler. One of the things that drove it was, like everything in the United States of America, cost. Because prior to shuttle, it was all throwaway. Flew once and threw it away, basically. And shuttle was designed from the beginning as a reusable spacecraft. It looks like an airplane. It flew like an airplane coming back, even though it didn't have power. It was an unpowered. People don't realize that it glided down to a landing after it came out of orbit. So what we're doing are two major things, I guess. We're flying people up to essentially view the Earth from space. And so one of the major changes that occurred in the, in the post-Apollo period was Earth sciences, looking back at the Earth. How do we do that? And well, you can do it from a moving platform that stays up for a few days and comes down, or you can decide to fly a space station. And people don't realize, but the, this nation's first space station was actually an empty tank, essentially, from an S-4B upper stage for the Saturn V rocket that was flown into orbit and parked in orbit as, a, as an empty stage that was outfitted as our first space station. Flew four crews up there over the period of about a year, a year and a half. And their whole purpose was space observation and learning to live and work in space. The nature of the space program in America has changed significantly, but Kohler believes the program is strong today and has a bright future. If you look at um, the history of NASA, for a long time, it was tied up in what I'll call single-purpose missions. And the problem with that is funding ends and you sort of start over again. And shuttle was the first real move to multi-purpose missions. And now we're looking at things like, how do we get to Mars? One-way trips to Mars are just about out of sight at this point. So what NASA has done is begun to put multi-purpose missions in place. So we'll park something around the moon, we'll be able to deal with activities on the moon, but we'll also be able to build activities that allow us to launch beyond uh, Earth orbit, if you will, to Mars or wherever else we wish to go. That's the nature of where we're headed right now. Manned spaceflight is still pretty risky. It probably will always be. Uh, that trip to Mars, as you know, the trip to the moon is three days and we come back. Stay as long as you wish, but if you have a problem, you're back in three days. Mars, is, it's now nine months there and nine months back, and, and the orbits have to match in order to make it the shortest distance. Much, much greater challenges, and what has happened is all those companies that were government contracts in the early days, some of those are still around, and now they're doing true commercial work where they can sell time for satellite launches to foreign governments, to foreign companies, uh, 
and they're beginning to emerge as, I think, a true partnership between what they won't do or can't do, the government will, and what the government doesn't have to do, they will, they will do for us. Much broader program. And I think it's all just about to really blossom. We're going to see really interesting. Well, people like you and I will have a chance to go into space if we want to do it. All you got to have is a lot of money. <laughs> it's coming. Some people look at government funding of the space program and argue that the money might be better spent addressing other issues. Kohler says those people don't understand all of the benefits that the space program has already given us. An iPhone has more computing power than what took us to the moon. And, and that all came out of the space program. Miniaturization, medical uh, findings, uh, food preservations, believe it or not, all kinds of things that were derived in addition to global positioning satellites, weather forecasting, storm tracking. Uh, you just go down the list and say, first of all, not one single dollar that was spent on the space program was spent in space. Every dollar spent was spent right here on Earth. And if you look at the multiplier effect for science investments, it's probably five or seven to one return on investments with the kind of people that you hire, the educational programs that are required to do that, there's a whole infrastructure that goes along with space exploration that invigorates the economy that it lives in. And you can see the impact in Florida that happened. Essentially an agricultural state, along comes uh, the long-range proving ground and Cape Canaveral and the launch activities. And now we have morphed that into not only launch activities, manufacturing activities, integration activities, testing activities, launch and recovery activities. And what amazed me is it all plays pretty well into tourism. People come here to enjoy themselves and have fun. Now they get to come here, enjoy themselves, have fun, work on space shuttles and space rockets, go into space, come back, have some more fun, and go home. It's an amazing set of activities that's only going to grow. It's going to get better. Dr. Al Kohler had a 32-year career with NASA and led the creation of Space Tech, the National Science Foundation's Center for Aerospace Technical Education. He is author of Exploring Space, Opening New Frontiers, available from Amazon.com. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch new episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, find great books on Florida history and culture, and subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
Ben, we're looking at the result of the first comprehensive effort to map South Florida. Yeah, that's right. The uh, The map we're looking at today was produced by Joseph Christmas Ives. Uh, Ives was a uh, U.S. Army officer. He graduated from West Point in 1852, uh, was originally from New York, and is probably most famous for his work as a topographical engineer uh, on a survey expedition up the Colorado River in 1857 and 1858. Uh, but prior to this well-known exploit, I've spent quite a bit of time in Florida. He was here for most of 1855. And what he noticed, given his engineering background, was the lack of a comprehensive group of of maps or information that uh, army officers could turn to when planning and executing military operations in Florida during the Seminole Wars period. Uh, Now, this is a a decades-long conflict that involved tens of thousands of U.S. regular military officers and enlisted men, as well as several uh, volunteer militias, in an effort to remove the uh, Seminole Indians from Florida to the Western Territory, specifically Oklahoma. Uh, Now, at this point, the the Second Seminole War had wrapped up in about 1842, uh, but there was still a fairly strong federal presence in South Florida. Uh, but again, there was a lack of any um, comprehensive topographical uh, maps that would aid these officers in their operations. So Ives sought to uh, fill that gap. And, and what he did essentially was collate dozens of reports and, and maps that had been produced by other army officers during the First and Second Seminole Wars and created the map that we're looking at today. Now, this is entitled A Military Map of the Peninsula of Florida, South of, of Tampa Bay. Uh, and that's basically what it is. But what we notice is different from, from earlier maps. Uh, you'll see very detailed accounts of uh, not only U.S. fort sites, but locations of Seminole Indian encampments. Uh, locations of major battles and skirmishes. Uh, But you'll also notice throughout the interior of the state, we have a crisscrossing of trails that are denoted. And that's uh, very important because the government had set up a series of of forts along both the eastern and and, uh, western coasts of Florida, but it was important to keep these forts supplied. Uh, And as the years went on, and and we get into the Third Seminole War, there were uh, groups of army officers who came into Florida and simply didn't even know how to traverse between two different fort sites. Uh, so Ives compiled this material together. He actually denoted whether or not the, the trail was improved upon, whether it was a, a basic walking trail, whether it was wide enough to accommodate a wagon. All of this information proved vitally important for Army operations uh, leading into the Third Seminole War, which wrapped up in about 1858. But along with the map, uh, Ives also produced a narrative account, uh, and it's a memoir that accompanies a military map of the peninsula of Florida. And at the very beginning, in his introduction, remarks, Ives uh, points out that, quote, a considerable portion of the state of Florida, south of Tampa Bay, is a comparatively unknown region. Its natural features oppose great obstacles to the prosecution of surveys and explorations. And although many have been from time to time accomplished under the direction of different commanding officers of the troops stationed here, the results have not all been connected nor embodied into any available form, unquote. So again, the goal of this uh, operation, at least, or, or the goal for Ives was to produce a comprehensive collation of all of that information that would benefit uh, the federal government in their military operations. Uh, and in this narrative, it can be fairly dry, but it's, it's incredibly important because of the detail that Ives uh, includes. And I'll just read quickly a description of Big Cypress, uh, the Big Cypress swamps in uh, southwest Florida. He says here, quote, there are certain obstacles to a campaign in the Big Cypress at all times. 
In the pine woods, the palmettos often grow so thick and large that horses cannot travel among them, nor men without great trouble. And in the swamps, the thick cypress trees and the underbrush hammocks and the boggy ground form equal or greater obstructions, unquote. And the narrative is filled with these really great, very detailed explanations of where the forts are located, how to traverse between the forts, and again, some of the natural environment. Well, now, obviously, we have even more exact maps today. So why is this one and the narrative that goes along with it still useful? Well, if we look at this map again, we have pointed out specific sites of some of the forts that existed during this time period. Now, keep in mind that these forts were ephemeral in nature. These are not stone forts. They were usually made of just mounds of earth, maybe some pine logs for for temporary defenses. So for historic archaeologists, for uh, those studying the uh, early natural history of Florida, these types of maps and this narrative are extremely important for environmental historians in particular, because within a few decades after Uh, this map was produced, the state government and land developers began draining the Everglades, which uh, ultimately changed the the hydrology and and the environment of South Florida irreparably uh, going forward. So to have an account of what the natural environment was like and also the location of many of these fort sites for historic archaeologists and for historians, we can piece together these narratives where otherwise we wouldn't have any tangible evidence of some of the history of, of the Third Seminole War. Interesting. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. The Brooklyn borough in Jacksonville was inhabited by U.S. colored troops who had served in the Civil War. Holly Baker, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has this report. Even if you look at some of the old maps, you can see that the houses don't necessarily always line up the same way according to the streets. Uh, Some of the houses look like they protrude into the streets a little bit. And in particular, this house at 328 Chelsea Street in Jacksonville's Brooklyn area comes right out to the street, whereas uh, the newer houses, which are still really old at this point, the shotgun houses on, uh, you know, right next to it on the other side are, are back from the street quite a bit. You know, it was haphazard. That was Tim Gilmore, a Jacksonville-based author who talked to me about Jacksonville's Brooklyn borough. At the end of the Civil War, the Union occupied Jacksonville. Many African Americans were displaced. There had always been a large black population here, and suddenly they could, uh, you know, there was the promise of uh, their living free lives here. So a lot of uh, former U.S. colored troops, as they were called, USCT, you know, they they were actually, uh, they were given the chance to buy houses of their own, which, uh, you know, if you can just imagine what a radical thought that must have been. And uh, this this neighborhood, it's kind of a mystery still as to why it was called Brooklyn, because it was platted by 
a uh, Confederate veteran named Miles Price, uh, and yet he called it Brooklyn. And uh, he planted it into lots and sold a lot of those lots to to uh, former slaves and uh, former uh, Union, you know, black soldiers, United States colored troops. Over the years, much of Price's Brooklyn has been replaced, along with many of the other historic houses. However, one lot remains, 328 Chelsea Street, the last house of its kind. There's very little of what you would call old Brooklyn left, although, you know, there's a lot of new population in Brooklyn because of gentrification and uh, new apartment complexes. But, uh, you know, this house, this particular house that's left, there were a couple of others nearby on Chelsea Street and also around the corner on Spruce Street. Uh, 328 Chelsea is the only one of these left, and it it's easy to drive by it and not really notice it. But at the same time, if you're if you're really looking, it stands out. It looks quite different from the shotgun houses that are nearby and the, the so-called dog trot houses that are, are nearby. Uh, it stands all the way forward to the street, and it's with the uh, the gentrification of, of Brooklyn. There's been a, a sudden new interest in the the last dozen or so old houses that are left in Brooklyn, and uh, 328 Chelsea is 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 one of the very oldest. I mean, it's probably it was probably built in the 1870s, and it was uh, almost certainly built for uh, you know United States colored troops. With many of the other historic houses now gone, Gilmore goes on to describe what makes 328 Chelsea so unique. Brooklyn, really, there there were two. It was kind of split in half. Brooklyn, closer to to the St. Johns River, actually had lots of uh, you know mansions. Uh, one of the mayors built a six-story house on the river there, and uh, but Brooklyn is sandwiched in between uh, La Villa, which is now the western part of downtown, but was at one time its own black municipality, and uh, and on the other side, uh, Riverside Avondale, which is you know this three-mile-long historic district. 328 Chelsea is what's called a hall and parlor house, so its uh, its its roof line is at a 90 degree angle from that of the shotgun houses, so it looks completely different that way. And really, it would have had it would have had a front porch. Uh, that front porch was closed in at some point, so it's it's stuccoed over. The name of the style of the house comes from the fact that there is a, a, a kind of parlor in the front, and then there's a very short hall with a bedroom in the back and a kitchen on on the side. Though much of Brooklyn has fallen and disappeared with the passage of time, Gilmore tells me of the plan to keep 328 Chelsea from the same fate. There is an effort to preserve the house. I know that there are a few people looking at doing so, and part of that involves bringing the Jacksonville Historic Preservation Commission in and getting historic designation for the older part of Brooklyn, of which, again, very little is left, but this is one of the houses, uh, and I think that's where you know, the main uh, preservationist thrust is right now. You can find Tim Gilmore online at jackpsychogeo.com. Jacks is spelled J-A-X. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.